Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? Bosworth Summit Pond by LTC Rolt. With the exception of the lockkeepers in their lonely cottages by the cold Bosworth and Cannon's Hanger locks, and of the infrequent boatmen who navigate its narrow, tortuous course, very few people are familiar with the little-used North Midlands section of the Great Central Canal. Many have crossed over it and perhaps caught a brief glimpse of its still, reed-fringed waters as they hurried northward by those great main road and rail routes which stride so arrogantly across the Midland shires. Yet they are seldom sufficiently interested to inquire whither this forgotten water road leads. Again, antiquaries and those who make it their hobby to collect village churches will be familiar with the splendid brooch spire of St. Peter's called Bosworth, which, standing four square to the winds of the wolds, is such a prominent local landmark. But when they stand in the nave to admire the remarkable 14th century rood screen or the delicate tracery of the clerestory windows, they do not realise that the waters of the great central canal lie directly beneath their feet. In fact, the Church of St. Peter stands upon that great belt of limestone which extends from the Dorset coast to the Yorkshire border and which here forms the central watershed of England. As a glance at a contoured map will show, the erosion of the small streams which may carry the rainwater from the church roof to the Humber, the Wash or the Bristol Channel has considerably narrowed the ridge at this point. Consequently, it was here that the canal engineers decided to cut the watershed by a tunnel over a mile long. Just above the lock, called Bosworth Top, and within a few hundred yards of the churchyard wall, the canal disappears underground. But as both lock and tunnel portal are hidden in the thick undergrowth of the Bosworth wood, a stranger standing in the churchyard would be unaware of their existence. Before he leaves the precincts of St. Peter's, I would draw the visitor's attention to a tombstone standing on the north side of the churchyard. The stone itself is of no particular merit, while it bears no inscription to attract the eye of the collector of curious epitaphs. It may therefore easily escape notice. Although a frequent visitor to the church, I must confess that I never noticed it myself until my attention was drawn to it by Fawcett's story. It was then that I appreciated that the inscription, though simple, is after all somewhat singular. It reads, Here lies the body of Mary Grimsden, of Cannonshanger in this parish, aged twenty-five years. Here lies also the body of John Fortescue Lofthouse, of Coppice Farm, Cold Bosworth, died 14th February, 1841, aged thirty-one years. In death they were not divided. The fact that the date of Mary Grimsden's death is not given might conceivably be due to an error on the part of the village mason, but the two ostensibly unrelated persons should be buried in a common grave and accorded an epitaph usually reserved for those who have enjoyed many years of conjugal felicity to strike the reflective as peculiar. Henry Fawcett was one of those men who love messing about in boats, to use a popular phrase, and as he was a man of independent means with no domestic ties, he was a confirmed bachelor, who was able to indulge his passion to the full throughout his long lifetime. Although I accompanied him on several occasions, even I had no idea of the extent of his voyaging until, after his death, there came into my possession a number of manuscript volumes in which, minutely detailed in his cramped, characteristic hand, 
he had kept a complete record of his travels. From this it appeared that there were few harbours in the Mediterranean or along the northwestern seaboard of Europe with which he was not familiar. As may be imagined, the log recorded many adventures, some of them experiences that would have induced many less intrepid sailors to leave the sea for solid earth. There is thus something oddly ironical in the fact that the man who single-handed could ride out an equinoctial gale in the Bay of Biscay without a qualm should have been scared almost out of his wits on the narrow landlocked waters of the Grand Central Canal at Cold Bosworth in the heart of the English Midlands. It happened in 1932 on what was fated to be his last voyage. In the autumn of 28, Fawcett had returned to England a sick man. He lay in hospital all that winter, and when at last he was able to get about again, he realised bitterly that his seagoing days were over. But he would not leave the water. I shall have to stick to fresh water, he told me ruefully. He sold his yawl Deirdre and bought one of those long, narrow canal boats which he proceeded to convert into a comfortable, motor-driven houseboat. The last time I saw him was during the winter of 31, when he had a snug berth on the Trenton Mersey Canal. He then seemed in good health and spirits and told me of his intention to move south in the spring. I had no further news of him until the following June when I heard with some surprise that his boat, the Wildflower, was up for sale. A week or so afterwards I read the announcement of his death in the Times. Because Fawcett recorded his last voyage in his usual scrupulous manner, and thanks to my intimate knowledge of the district, it has been easy for me to reconstruct the story of his experience at Cold Bosworth. He was accompanied by a friend unknown to me who was referred to in the log as Charles. The journey from the Trenton Mersey to the Great Central was accomplished in good weather and without any untoward incident and a fine May morning found them beginning the long climb of the Cannons Hanger locks towards cold Bosworth summit level. Charles, it appears, had to return to London for a couple of days on business, so it was agreed that when they reached a convenient mooring point, Fawcett should wait his return. Because it is connected by branch line with rugby, cold Bosworth was selected. Fawcett consulted the lock keeper at Cannons Hanger as to a convenient mooring and was advised to tie up below Bosworth top lock. By midday they had reached the summit, and here they paused for lunch before entering the tunnel. Navigating a boat through a canal tunnel is always a strange experience, but Fawcett seems to have found the passage of Bosworth Tunnel singularly unpleasant. Not only was the narrow cavern of crumbling brickwork as cold and dark as a vault after the warmth and brilliance of the May sunshine, but water streamed from the roof and descended in cascades from the chimneys with the ventilation shafts. He had the utmost difficulty in keeping a straight course, for the damp atmosphere exhaled an evil-smelling mist which obscured the farther end of the tunnel and rendered the headlight on the bow ineffective. All he could see ahead was the lambent white curtain patterned confusingly with shifting shadows. At one moment he thought he saw Charles leaning dangerously over the gunwale at the bow and called out, fearing he would strike his head against the tunnel wall, but Charles answered from the aft cabin close at hand, and the shadow presently vanished. At length, a wan disk of daylight appeared, and they presently emerged from the mists into the bright sunlight of the short pound between the tunnel mouth and Bosworth Top Lock. The canal here is well sheltered by the slopes of Bosworth Wood. On the one hand, the trees grow down to the water's edge, but on the towing path side, a narrow border of smooth green turf intervenes. It looks an ideal mooring and Fawcett wondered why the lock-keeper at Cannon's Hangar should have advised him to lie below the lock. Not only did this appear less inviting, 
but it was farther from the village. His recommendation seemed even less explicable when, having brought the wildflower alongside the bank, Charles discovered rusty mooring rings buried beneath the turf. Obviously it was here that in the days of horse-drawn traffic the horses were detached and led over the hill, while the boats were laboriously legged through the tunnel. Now the horse path had become a little-used footway climbing up the wooded slope towards the village, and in places almost blinded by the thick undergrowth of briar and hazel. It was up this path that Charles set forth half an hour later, just in time to catch the afternoon train from that sleepy station called Cold Bosworth and Marlborough Road. Fawcett was too well accustomed to his own company to feel lonely or at a loss after the departure of his friend. When he had brewed himself a pot of tea, he filled his pipe, got out his rod, and sat out on the deck fishing. Though he caught nothing, he was well content, for the contemplation of his motionless float was little more than an excuse for the enjoyment of a fine evening. The westering sunlight threw golden moated rays between trees resplendent with new leaf, and the wood was loud with birdsong. The smoke of Fawcett's pipe made a thin blue column in the windless air, yet when the sun left the wood and the shadows began to gather round the mouth of the tunnel, it grew chilly, and he went below. He cooked himself a liberal supper, wrote up the log for the day, and then with a sigh of contentment turned in to his comfortable bunk. But for some uncountable reason he was denied his customary sound sleep. After a fitful doze, during which he tossed and turned uneasily, he suddenly awoke to full consciousness, and the dawn was already breaking before he slept again. Two distracting sounds contributed to this wakefulness. One was a soft recurrent thudding as though of some resilient object floating in the water occasionally nudged the hull of the boat. The other was a faint but desolate wailing, rising and falling in mournful irregular cadences and sounding now close about the boat and now infinitely far off. It seemed to come from the direction of the tunnel and though Forcer could see through his cabin window a pattern of branches in motionless silhouette against the moonlight, he concluded it must be some trick of the wind blowing over the top of one of the ventilation shafts. With the aid of a boat hook, he might, he reflected, dispose of one of these disturbances at all events. Yet, for some reason, he felt singularly disinclined to leave his bed. He excused himself on the grounds that the night seemed to be remarkably cold for the time of year. The following day passed uneventfully. After his comfortable night, Fawcett slept late, and consequently it was nearly noon when breakfast disposed of, he set off for Cold Bosworth to replenish his stores in the village shop. On his return, he spent the rest of another glorious afternoon happily engaged on the numerous small jobs which can always be found on a boat. Charles was due to return the following morning, and this was a good opportunity to get everything shipshape before they continued their journey. Tomorrow, there must be no lying late abed so he turned in early, and this time fell almost immediately into a deep sleep. Whether what followed was a dream or not must be left for the reader to judge. He suddenly found himself standing on the stern of the wildflower and peering into the mouth of the tunnel. He had no idea why he was doing so or what he expected to see, for though the moon was bright, the blackness of the tunnel was impenetrable. The night was calm and beautiful, the moon silvered water reflecting dark arabesques of leaf and branch with mirror-like perfection. Yet somehow, the whole scene seemed to have become charged with that sense of imminent terror which is the prelude of nightmare.
Still, he continued to stare wide-eyed into the blackness, saying nothing and hearing only the hollow, echoing plash of the water which dripped from the tunnel roof. But at length he perceived a thickening of the shadows beneath the curving abutment wall, and presently saw a figure, more shade than substance, move down to the margin to crouch and stare into the still water. It moved without sound, and only the face showed pale in the moonlight. For a time the figure seemed to grope beside the water, and Fawcett knew, without knowing why he knew, that it sought for something which he'd feared to find. Then, with a swift movement which suggested that it had been startled by some sound inaudible to Fawcett, the figure rose and turned to peer intently into the tunnel. It was at this moment that the feeling of ominous expectancy, which all this while had been gathering like a thundercloud in Fawcett's mind, suddenly assumed most hideous shape. Something rose out of the water, something monstrous, that the reason most vehemently questioned, yet which possessed the semblance of human shape. Mercifully, it could not be clearly seen. The face, if face there was, seemed to be hidden by dark hair as by a veil, but the phosphorescence of corruption dimly suggested a nakedness of obscene distension. The dark watcher on the bank, with a gesture of despair, made to turn away, but stumbled. Upon the instant his fearful antagonist fell upon him with such lithe and intent purpose that the issue of the brief and soundless encounter was never in doubt, and soon the waters had closed over them both. Now, long before this, Fawcett should have awakened with a shout to find himself trembling and sweating in his bed, but he maintains that there was no awakening, that his fear gradually ebbed away until he realised that he was in truth shivering in his pyjamas on the aft deck of the wildflower. I have little doubt that the physical and mental rigours of this experience were at least partly responsible for his early death, for there is no further entry in the log and I conjecture that it was his friend Charles who took the wildflower on to Horton Junction, where she lay until she was sold. My recollection of Fawcett convinced me that he had experienced something more than a nightmare accompanied by a risky feat of somnambulism, and it was this conviction which took me to cold Bosworth. I will not weary the reader with all the details of a search which took me from the lockkeeper at Cannon's Hanger through the dusty files of the Marlborough Messenger to the tomb in the churchyard to which I have already referred. The lock-keeper at Cannon's Hanger proved to be uncommunicative and sceptical, though he admitted that the summit pound east of the tunnel was said by the boatmen to be disturbed, and that on this account they would never tie up there. Old Tom Oakey at Bosworth Locks, however, was more loquacious. They do say, he vouchsafed, that summit be troubled by a chap which drowned himself there a long time back, and it was this observation which was really the starting point of my research. The story begins not with the chap what drowned itself, but with Mary Grimsden. She lived with her widowed mother in a small cottage pulled down many years ago, which stood on common land on the fringe of Cannon's Hanger Woods. They appear to have been of gypsy stock, and Rebecca Grimsden is described as a herbalist. From this and other references I gather that she must have been a formidable old woman, who, had she lived at an earlier period, might well have suffered death as a witch. It seems that Mary took after her mother, but this did not prevent young John Lofthouse from falling a victim to her dark good looks. The Lofthouses were substantial yeoman farmers who had held Coppice Farm for generations, 
so that it is easy to understand why the infatuation of the heir with a cottager of doubtful antecedents and dubious occupation soon set tongues a-wagging. Eventually, news of the affair reached the ears of his family, and the young man who by this time may have realised the extent of his folly undertook to see his Mary no more. Yet rumour hinted that the girl was with child by young John, and that she intended by this means to retaliate against her faithless lover and his family. But from this embarrassing eventuality, the family of Lofthouse was spared by an unforeseen and surprising circumstance. At dusk, on a fine evening in August of 1840, Mary Grimsden walked out of the little cottage at Cannon's Hanger and never returned. Despite a most extensive search, no trace of her could be found, and though he had forsworn her, it was remarked that John Lofthouse appeared to be deeply affected by her loss. Though old Rebecca Grimsden persisted that she had been the victim of foul play, the village seems to have come to the conclusion that Mary's gypsy blood had got the better of her. Hardly had the talk aroused by this affair died down when in February of the following year, on the night of the 14th to be exact, it found fresh and startling matter in the disappearance of John Lofthouse. But this time the mystery was soon solved. A local boatman who had delivered a cargo of lime for Coppice Farm and who was working late down the Bosworth Locks claimed to have seen on the towpath the figure of young Mr. John walking swiftly and alone in the direction of the tunnel. Acting upon the strength of this evidence, it was decided to drag the canal beginning at the east portal of the tunnel. This led almost immediately to a discovery of a most shocking nature. For not only was the body of John Lofthouse recovered, but entangled with it in the grappling irons was another. Because the latter had been long dead, it was unrecognisable, nor was it possible to determine the cause of death. Death, in such a form, is never pleasant to behold, but this discovery seems to have had a singularly disconcerting effect upon the beholders. Though the canal had been dragged without result at the time of Mary's disappearance, Rebecca Grimsden identified a ring recovered with the body as having belonged to her daughter. Had it not subsequently been confirmed by other, more reliable witnesses, it is doubtful if this evidence of identification would have been admissible, for to judge from her conduct at the inquest, the old woman was out of her mind. Usually grim enough, there is a peculiar quality of the macabre about the account of the proceedings at this inquest. In the first place, when ordered to view the bodies of the deceased, the jury was so affected the proceedings had to be suspended for a time. When the hearing was eventually resumed, Rebecca Grimsden's interruptions made matters worse, for she seemed to be labouring under the ghastly illusion that she was attending her daughter's nuptials. Together with other singular observations which are not recorded, she kept reiterating that she had fulfilled her promise to provide her daughter with a bridegroom, an assertion which proved so disquieting that the coroner was compelled to order her removal from the court. Despite evidence that John Lofthouse had become increasingly morose since Mary Grimsden's disappearance, an open verdict was returned in both cases, perhaps in deference to the feelings of the young man's family. Yet why that family should have consented to the burial of their son in a common grave with a gypsy girl, and why they caused to be erected over it so curious a memorial, is not explained. I have formed my own conclusion, which I prefer not to discuss. Why we shall never know what occurred on that sultry August night so long ago when Mary Grimsden disappeared, I may mention in conclusion 
a discovery of my own which I consider significant. I was exploring the wood which gives Coppice Farm its name when I came across a circular wall of old brickwork, and upon investigation found that it protected the mouth of one of the ventilation shafts of Bosworth Tunnel. The wall was not so high that an active man might not thereby rid himself of a heavy and unwelcome burden, and as I leant over the parapet I could hear as from a well a drip of water far below. I returned in the gathering dusk of that winter evening past the east portal of the tunnel and along the towing path. The water looked black and was very still under the shadow of the trees. Though I would assure the reader that I am not a credulous man, I have to admit that I felt disinclined to stop and look about me, but hurried on, keeping as far as possible from the water's edge, and must confess to a feeling of profound relief when I reached the lower level below the top lock. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? That was Bosworth Pound Lock by L. T.C. wrote, Lionel Thomas Caswell wrote, and he was an English writer born in 1910, who died in 1974. So he's a recent writer as far as we're concerned. He was a prolific writer who had an interest in engineering and he became a bit of a specialist in stories that feature railways, steam railways and canals. He also wrote biographies and he wrote the biography of a couple of very famous engineers, Isambard Kingdom Brunel and of Thomas Telford. So he was interested in cars and machines and railways, and he also was involved in the inland, the UK Inland Waterway Society with Robert Aikman, who was a another very famous ghostwriter, ghost story writer. From 1936, Rolt decided he wanted a life afloat, and he converted his uncle's old boat, the Cressy, into a boat he could live in and spent his time mooching up and down on the canals of England. During the Second World War, he went to work with Rolls-Royce and made Merlin engines for the famous Spitfire Royal Air Force fighter. It was after the Second World War that he joined up with Aikman and formed the Canal Society, and he was a real pioneer of the canal cruising for pleasure. Often, you see, when you learn a little bit about the writers, you see something of their lives in their stories. And this, Bosworth Pound Lock, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the ghost story. You'll know I go on about ghosts being moral tales. And so here we have a classic moral story of boy meets girl beneath his station. This was a big thing in those days. Boy has a relationship with the girl. Boy kills girl, throws her down a ventilation shaft of a canal tunnel. Revengeful ghost of girl pulls boy into canal. Boy dies. His family are so moved that they bury the two together. Oh, yeah, in the meantime, the the, the woman's mother, who is a gypsy, says that she'd always get a bridegroom for her husband and the fact the the inquest and the funeral was in fact treated by the insane gypsy mother as a wedding. It's a pity we don't get to see her directly. And by a synchronicity, I'm just reading a book about gypsies and the old stopping places called The Stopping Places by a guy called Damien Labat. So I'm interested in reading about the Romany ways and things like that. So that's very interesting. But the thing I really love about this story in a difficult time that we're going through 
is the lovely idyllic. You remember I did the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, so I'm going to this rural England thing, waterways particularly, and there he is, his friend's gone, and he sits on his barge with his fishing rod. He's not really fishing, he's just sitting there in the evening, golden evening sun that filters through the fresh green leaves of an English forest woodland in May, and everything's really lovely. And I just think, oh God, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? I would love to go on a barge holiday in gorgeous weather and have nothing much to do. I'm still at work, by the way. So I have nothing much to do. Just sit down and enjoy the weather. And then the next day he goes to replenish his stores at the village stop in a charmingly named Cold Bosworth. Now, that just sounds fantastic to me. What I wouldn't give to be that man, apart from witnessing the terrifying revenant and being lured outside on a cold night and dying of cold. That, I don't fancy that bit, but I don't think that happens on every barge holiday. So there we are. So we're, we're still going strong as a podcast, I think, because everybody's locked in. They've got nothing else to do. If you would like to support us, that would be fantastic. I am considering other ways to fund the podcast, either through advertising or product placement. But then, I was because a lot of people who get loads and loads and loads of listens, they kind of say, I'm wearing the latest jeans. I don't know why I went into an American accent then. Um, I am wearing the latest jeans by Giorgio Armani, let's say. And Giorgio, rest his soul, or his company, bungs the podcaster with cash or like a load of pairs of jeans. I'm not sure that's going to work. I think the product has to be germane to the podcast. So, (laughs) I don't know, books, clearly, graveyard tours, uh, maybe... um, yeah, and I'm getting a bit too macabre. When my sense of humour is running away with me, just in the things I could product place, that would be interesting. You know, if you've got a got a thought on that, join our Facebook group. Yes, Classic Ghost Stories Facebook group. And put your suggestion to us of what I could product place as a, you know, that people would be interested in. Probably not jeans. Probably not. I can't, I, you know, I just can't say some of the things that are going through my mind. Anyway, enough rambling. Hope you're all safe and well and locked in. I wish you and yours all the very best and good health. And we'll come through this. The world will come through this and it'll be a changed place, but it might even be changed for the better.